Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at the first 17 verses, which as you just heard me tell the kids, uh, is a long list of names. And we read it last week. We're going to read it again this week so that it's fresh in our head and you have all those names rattling around in your head. Uh, so that we can reference them and talk about them and rejoice at the coming of Christ. So let's give our attention again to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ." So also the generation, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Most gracious Father, as we look this morning at your word and hear this wonderful story of Christ as the fulfillment of all things, I ask that you would strengthen me by your spirit to proclaim clearly and boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, as we come to this story uh, that, that really is just a list of names, there's, it, it's really this beautiful story. Like, it, it, I, I get it. It's just a long list of, uh, of, of mostly Hebrew names that we're trying to put together and, and, and trying to figure out how they all relate to each other. But, but what Matthew has done is he's, he's woven the genealogy of Christ together in this beautiful way to remind us that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything, that he's the fulfillment of all the promises. And what's interesting is as he has woven this list together, he, he's put some, some surprises in there that, that, that are very instructive and that are very helpful. And that if we see them for what they are, are actually incredibly comforting as we see who all Matthew has included in the story of Jesus. So as we look at this, we're going we're gonna to look at it kind of uh, 
from two main ways, but there's two introductory points that I want us to see at the beginning. First, I want us to, to kind of do a little bit of apologetic work, thinking about why Luke and Matthew's accounts might be different. Second, I want us to just note something about the structure briefly. Then we're going to look at the idea of fulfillment in this genealogy. And finally, the idea of from and for. And, and I'll explain that when we get there. So first of all, this apologetic idea. If, you, if you've read through the Gospels, you may have recognized uh, that there's two genealogies for Jesus that are given, one in Matthew and one in Luke. Each of these Gospel writers gives a genealogy. And if you read close and, and kind of waded through, you may have realized that, wait a minute, these are not exactly the same. That there's a handful of very notable differences. First of all, Luke goes all the way back to Adam. It doesn't just start at Abraham. Uh, second of all, they're, they're in reverse order. So whereas, whereas Matthew starts with Abraham and works toward Jesus, Luke starts with Jesus and works backwards. But then on top of those names, uh, which those are instructive to begin with, but, but on top of those differences, we see that some of the names are different. In fact, out of the hundred names, only a fraction of them are actually the same. And so the question, you know, comes up, and, and people have pointed this, like, ah, see, you can't trust the Bible. There's, there's contradictions in it. But, but, but I want to just say briefly, yeah, that's not necessarily the case. Because here's, here's what we can't do with the genealogies in Scripture at this point, or really at any point, at any genealogy. We, we can't pretend like what we're being given is kind of a, a 23andMe story or, or Ancestry.com story of Jesus' life. And, and his heritage. Because that's not what ha what's happening. See, when, when we put our family trees together, we, we want to include kind of everybody that we can find. And, and we want to make sure that we're telling the story right. And, and, and we, we want to get every generation in there. And, and, and even if there's, there's people that, that were like, oh man, I wish that wasn't there. They're still there. And, and we, we include them as part of the story. But in the Bible, that's not necessarily the case. Because they're, they're, that's not the case for a number of reasons. Well, one reason it's not the case is there's different motivations for why they may have written a genealogy. They may have wanted to just tell some about somebody's, you know, kind of biological heritage. That, that might be part of it. Like, where did they come from? Well, who was begat who and who begat who? But they might also be talking about kind of a royal lineage. And, and kind of the best understanding or, or explanation that, that I found, though, though there's, there's not a, a, an agreed-on kind of consensus answer to why these genealogies are different, I, I think the best answer is that, that Matthew seems to be recording a royal lineage of Jesus, and Luke seems to be recording more of a family lineage of Jesus. And that's going to account for different names, because people are brought into the family to inherit the throne at different points and all of this kind of thing. And but as far as like why there are different names, it, it can also be explained by the fact that we know that Matthew has structured his genealogy to make a point. He tells us at the end there's 14 generations from here to here and here to here and here to here. But then we go back and read the Old Testament and we see that actually, uh, Matthew, there were more than 14. Uh, you've skipped some people. And indeed, he has. And that doesn't make the genealogy untrue. For instance, we, we could say, and, and uh, one, one author pointed out, you could say that, uh, and now I've gone blank on the name, Prince Harry is the, the heir of, or I'm sorry, Prince William is the heir of Queen Elizabeth. And, and that's true. That's an absolutely true statement. It skips multiple generations, but that's a true statement. He is the heir of Queen Elizabeth. And, and so 
You can do the same thing in Scripture. And in fact, we see Matthew doing that, skipping generations for one reason or another, in order to make the point that he's wanting to make. What's interesting is he doesn't do what I would have done has been like, this guy was horrible. Let's skip him. He does that sometimes. But there's some people that he includes that, that absolutely would not be included if I were making the list. And that's going to be instructive here in just a moment. So the, the point of this, this first kind of apologetic point is, is simply this. We don't need to see these two different genealogies and think, oh, there's a problem with the Bible. There's not. There's multiple ways to explain, even though there's, there's not a consensus on kind of what the best explanation is. We don't have to assume that they're contradictory. Because there's not. There, there's, there's good, valid, acceptable reasons to explain the differences. So if you hear that, you, you can kind of dismiss that. It's like, yeah, that's, that's actually just not particularly true. It's not a particularly well-informed objection to what's going on. The, the second thing I want us to see in Matthew's genealogy is the structure. The structure of what is happening here. He, he gives it to us in verse 17 that there's 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon, and 14 generations from the deportation to, uh, to Christ. And, and so if we, if we think back over the, the stories that we've read going through Advent, well, what Matthew is doing is he's structuring this genealogy in order to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of Israel's story. To show that Jesus is, in fact, the true Israel. That, that he's the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. That, that he is the promise seed. That, that he's the fulfillment of promises made to David. That he's the promise seed there. That he's the fulfillment of, of the promises like the one we read uh, and that Jay told us about last week from Jeremiah 33. That he hasn't actually forgotten his promises. And so Matthew structures this to picture Jesus as the true Israel as the one who would fulfill all the promises that God has made to Israel. And, and he does this in these three groups of 14 generations. And so that sets up this, this idea of fulfillment. And, and we see it very clearly. If, if we put together the, the Advent passage that we've looked at, we see, okay, he starts with Abraham. We read the story of, of Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, 17, and 22. We, we see that, that in Genesis 12, the, the covenant is promised. In 15, it's ratified. In 17, it's signified. And then in Genesis 22, the covenant promise is confirmed once again. So we've got this, this beautiful kind of tapestry of covenant promises made to Abraham that, that then get passed down to Isaac and to Jacob and, and on down the line. And, and they're referenced again and again all through Israel. Israel's story, that God will remember his promises to Abraham. But of course, at this point, it seems like in the story that, that perhaps he has forgotten those promises. Because, because those promises, if you remember, those promises had everything to do with a land and, and, and a people and a place and, and a blessing to all the nations. And, and that seems very far at this point in Israel's history when Matthew is writing or when Christ is about to be born. That seems very far from what has happened. The second movement we see is from David to the deportation. And, and David, of course, was the great king of Israel. The, the man chosen according to God's heart. The, the, the one who defeated Goliath. The one who was able to beat the Philistines. The, the one who established peace in the land. That God gave them rest. Really the, the start of the kingdom. 
And he was given this promise that we read earlier in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that his house would be established forever. And that there would never be someone lacking to, to sit on his throne and reign forever. But again, at this point that we come to, at the, at the birth of Christ, these promises seem so far lost, so far forgotten. Because it's not just that there's not someone reigning on David's throne anymore, someone from his life. It, 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 it's actually much worse than that. The kingdom has been obliterated. They were actually exiled for a while. Psalm 89 tells this story where, where, where they're calling out like, have you forgotten what you promised David? And yes, they had come back from the deportation. They had been brought back in. But it was just never the same. They were never the, the rulers of Israel like they had been at one time. The, 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 the temple that they rebuilt held in comparison. The, 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 the holiness of God, the, the Shekinah glory, never re-inhabited the temple. Everything felt like a shell game, it seems. Nothing was quite what it was under David's reign and his line. So even though they were back in Israel, they were under the authority of the Romans. The, 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 the temple was glorious outwardly, but, but the glory of God didn't fill it again, and it wasn't what it was supposed to be, and it was being used in all kinds of ways that, that Christ had to come and clean up. So, but here, Matthew is telling us that Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises given. And, and of course, he, he's the true son of David. He's the true king. He's the son that, that is talked about in Psalm chapter 2. And then this third movement is this deportation to Babylon. In 586, when Jerusalem is finally conquered, and, and, and they, they send everybody abroad to, to undo Israel completely. The northern kingdom had been conquered in, in 722. Now the southern kingdom was conquered. And, and there's really just kind of nothing left of Israel. Far from being a people with a land, they're now a people with, without a land, just scattered, just, just wandering around, trying to figure out where, where do we exist? How do we exist? Where do we belong? Do, do we have any place that we can be? And yes, of course, they come back and they rebuild the temple. They rebuild the wall. We read the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah. But again, it never was quite what, what they had hoped it would be. There were rebellions along the way where they would throw off one person's power or another, but, but never for very long. They, they dwelt really as inhabitants of a land, but, but kind of just people that were being allowed to be there by the people that really controlled the land. And Matthew comes along and says, hey, Christ is the answer to that as well. That, that he's the one who will bring people back from exile. He's the one who, who will bring people back from all the places that they've been scattered. And of course, the New Testament confirms all this. Paul tells us in Galatians 3 that, that Jesus is the seed of Abraham, that that, that promise pointed to a, to a particular seed, and it's Christ. Luke tells us in, in no uncertain terms as he records the, the words of the angel to Mary in Luke chapter 1 that Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the promised seed of David. The author of Hebrews tells us that, that he's the fulfillment of these new covenant promises that, that promised the restoration of the people of God. And, and even Caiaphas recognizes that, that he's going to bring people back in from where they've been scattered. Jesus is the one who fulfills 
everything. Because He's the true Israel. He's the one who who makes all the promises yes and amen. He's the one who establishes the kingdom of God. He's the one who establishes the promises of God. And we get all of that only in Him. Because He did what Israel couldn't do at every turn. He did what Israel wouldn't do at every turn. And then gave himself to pay for our sin and bring us in to the kingdom. So so as we read this this genealogy, we we need to see all of that. It it ends specifically, Jesus was born who is called Christ. Christ is is the the English transliteration of the Greek word Christos, which which translates the Messiah. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. He's the anointed one. He's the perfect prophet, priest, king. All of these promises are wrapped up in that single name at the end of this genealogy. Everything that Israel hoped for, everything that that we hope for, is wrapped up in Jesus. It's wrapped up in Christmas. It's wrapped up in the birth of this baby in Bethlehem so many years ago. That's what we get to celebrate. That's what we get to celebrate this morning. That's why we sing God and sinners reconciled. But as we look a little bit closer and kind of zoom in on some of the particulars of this genealogy, we see something really interesting. As I said earlier, that if I were writing a genealogy of somebody important and I was going to skip generations, there's certain chapters that I might be want to skip because they're kind of ugly. But Matthew doesn't do that. He includes all of these people. With all of their, their, their problems and, and, and with all of their failures and with all of their struggles and with all of their, their outsiderness, he includes all of them. And I think this is a very, very important point for us to see about our Savior. Because it reminds us where he's actually from. It reminds us that, that, no, he really is like a person with a lineage, with a history, and that history informs who he is. And, and actually, that history informs what he came to do. Just like our stories and, and our lineage inform, at some level, who we are. And when we misunderstand who we are, we, we, we misrepresent ourselves. And, and so, so these stories are important. It's important for us to, to read this list and, and, and think back to, to what we said about Abraham, that, that, that he had these promises, but at every turn, he failed. He would get the promises of God and then fail to believe them. And then God would reiterate the promise, and then he would fail to believe it. And then he would reiterate, and that was just the cycle of Abraham's life. It's important for us to see that David was, was simultaneously the man after God's own heart. That the man chosen according to God's heart and and the one who struggled to keep his cool, and the one who killed Uriah after sleeping with Bathsheba, and the one who who failed morally kind of a lot. It's important for us to see these stories. It's important for us to see that, that, that when you read in the second section of the genealogy all the different kings that were listed, that, that a lot of them, are the, are the kings that it says, this king did not walk in the ways of his father David, but worshiped at the high places. 
over and over and over, you've got these kings that were leading people away from God. Yes, some of them were, were good and they walked in the ways of David and they, they got rid of the high places and, and they restored worship and, and some great things happened along the way. But so many of these kings, Rehoboam, Abijah, Joram, Uzziah, Manasseh, Amos, Jeconiah, they were failures as kings as far as leading Israel back to what is true. But here they are in the genealogy. Now, we don't know as much about the last group of names because that was the intertestamental period by and large, but, but we can assume the same thing there safely. Why? Because they're people too. And so what does this tell us? It tells us who Jesus came from. See, if we're honest, we, we, we may have a tendency to think like, oh, Jesus' genealogy was probably just this spotless genealogy. Like, I mean, like to be that good, you had to come from good stock, right? But, but he didn't. Indeed, if we think clearly for even half a second, we realize he couldn't if he was truly man. And here's why that matters. The, the type of folks that Jesus came from are the type of folks that Jesus came for. And that's great hope for us. Because, because if, we're honest, we, we, if we're honest, we identify more with Abraham and his failures than, than with the people who reestablished everything and it was wonderful. It's good news for us to see that the type of folks Jesus came from are, that's exactly the type of folks he came for. And this is what he says in Matthew 9 and in Luke 5. I didn't come to call the righteous. It's not the healthy who need a physician. It's the sick. I came to call sinners. See, that's what this whole Christmas season is really all about. That Christ came in the weakness of flesh, in the weakness of a troubled genealogy for people that were weak in their flesh and that came from and contributed to similarly troubled genealogies. But here's what's incredible. As we, as we look a little bit closer, there's, there's five names or, or four names in a reference in this genealogy that are a little bit surprising because there's five women that are mentioned in this genealogy. And if you've read very many biblical genealogies, you know that that's not the norm. And indeed, that wasn't the norm in the ancient Near East for genealogies. But there's five women that are, that are mentioned. Tamar is mentioned. Rahab is mentioned. Ruth is mentioned. And then Bathsheba is mentioned, but not by name. She's just called the wife of Uriah. And then Mary is mentioned. And here's what's fascinating about all five of these women. All five of them that are included in this story, all five of them are in some kind of compromised situation in their life when we come across them in the Bible. None of them are like, oh, yeah, like the Queen of Sheba, who, like, yeah, like this really important woman that changed. It's not Deborah, right? No, these are five women that are in horribly compromised situations. Tamar had been given to, to all the brothers and they had all died and, and Judah didn't want to, you know, give the youngest son to her because there was a pattern and he was good at recognizing patterns. And so he refused. And, and so that left her completely exposed. So she did what we all do. She took matters into her own hand and she came up with a plan. I'll pretend to be a prostitute, sleep with my father-in-law, get pregnant, and then he'll have to. And that's what she does. And she's here. That this woman who, who simultaneously was horribly compromised by, by the, just the reality of the social structures 
but also horribly compromised herself to deal with them. Rahab is known as Rahab the prostitute. And here she is. Well, we know the story of Bathsheba, and I understand it can be, it can be read in two different ways. It can be read either as, as like she was kind of complicit in the adulterous act, or it can be read as she was kind of taken advantage of by the king who just saw the beautiful woman and was like, you know what, I want her, go get her for me. And it's hard to make a, a, a very sound decision on what exactly happened, but neither story is great. Neither story is like, you know what, that's who we include in the story of the Savior of the world. That kind of person. That kind of story. That's what we want in there. Ruth, of course, wasn't even Jewish. She was a Moabite that, that, that came back home with her Jewish mother-in-law and had to be redeemed by Boaz and kind of woven into the family. But she was a widow who, who left her land and left any security she might have had to, to come home with her mother-in-law. Horribly compromised situation. Boaz could have been like, no, I'm not doing that. And then there's Mary, who, you know, I mean, it's, it's a somewhat compromised situation if you show up and you're like, hey, dear Joseph that I'm about to marry, by the way, I'm pregnant. I mean, it tells us in the story that, that Joseph's like, well, okay, I could put two and two together. We're going to get a divorce. It, she's in a hard situation. Joseph has the advantage of, of the angel coming to him and being like, no, 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 Joseph, listen up. This is all legit. It's all on the up and up. She's going to give birth to the Savior. Right, but, but when you're at the pub or wherever like Jewish dudes hung out and the guys are like, dude, I heard your fiance's pregnant. And your answer is, yeah, 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 but here's the deal. An angel came and told me everything's legit. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Savior of the world is going to, I'm going to raise him. Like that. <laughs> Seriously, like that's how you're getting through this? That's what you're telling yourself. Undoubtedly, all the other people that, that hear this story are like, I mean, you know, they're talking. They're just as horrible and, and wretched and gossips as, as any of us would be if this situation happened. It would have been a horribly compromised. Not to mention that they get to Bethlehem, there's no place to stay, and all of that situation. But here they are. The sinful, the broken, the failures, the forgotten. All part of Jesus' story. Why? Because the people he came from are the people he came for. That's who he came for. He came for those who were broken. He came for those who were undone by life. He came for those who were living in absolutely compromised situations. He came for those whose sin has overcome them. He came for those who have oppressed and taken advantage of people. He came for those who've led people away from the truth. He came for the failed for the forgotten, for the frustrated, for the fearful. That's who Jesus came for. And that's who Jesus came from. Now, 
Why do we need to hear that this Christmas morning, this Christmas Eve morning? Here's why. We spend an incredible amount of time and money and energy and thought trying not to be the kind of person Jesus came for. Or at least trying to appear to not be the kind of person that Jesus came for. And here's the problem with doing that. It leaves us on the outside. It leaves us away from Christ. It leaves us with no hope. And it does this for two reasons. If we don't come to Christ with with our need and say, look, I've got nothing, then we actually don't come to Christ. Because the only way you can come to him is in need calling out for mercy, calling out for forgiveness, calling out for hope and help. That's the only way to come to Christ because what you're coming for is mercy. If you don't need mercy, you don't need him. It also leaves us undone for another reason because we know it's not true. We know that that all the work that we do to try to present ourselves as not the kind of person that Jesus came for, we know. We know it's a lie. We, We may not admit it, or at least we may not like to admit it. But we know that, that everyone who thinks that, that we're these upstanding, wonderful, just successful people, we know that they're wrong. Because we know what's in us. We know what we've done. We know our failures. We know our feelings. We know our fears. We know our forgottenness. We know all of that. And so we know that at best, all we're doing is appearing to not need a Savior. See, the freedom that this gives us is the freedom to be the kind of person that Jesus came to save. Now here, I want to be clear about what I don't mean. I don't mean, hey, go sin to make sure that you need Jesus. That's not what I mean. Why do I not mean that? Because you've already got that covered. You've already done that. You're good there. Here's what I mean. It frees you to admit that you're the kind of person that Jesus came for. It frees you to admit that, you know what? I'm full of fear. You know what? My my past is checkered at best. I've failed so many times. I've been forgotten, and I feel forgotten even by God. See, when we see who it is that Jesus came for, it gives us the freedom to be honest about who and how we actually are. Because we realize, oh, Jesus came for me because I'm in that category. I'm in the category of having failed. I'm in the category of having been forgotten. I'm in the category of being driven by fear at every turn. He came for me. See, that's the glory of Christmas is that Jesus came through the kind of people that he came for. 
And so we all belong in his story. We all get to be part of the kingdom. Think about Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Like these kings that that, standing, and, and where does it end? Kiss the son. Take refuge in him and you'll be blessed. What's the psalmist telling us? That even those who have stood against Christ get to come to him for refuge. That's Christmas. That's what we're seeing unfold before us. That's what we're celebrating. That this one who came from all of these failed people came for all of these failed people. That's the joy of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story that is told through this list of names. We thank you that that Christ, the true Israel, came from the actual Israel with all their warts because that's who he came for. And and we thank you that, that even in his story, Gentiles are included because that's who he came for. That here we find the forgotten, the fearful, the forsaken, because that's who he came for. And so we rejoice at Christmas because here we see a child who brought the kingdom of God and brought it for folks like us. And so we get to party. We get to rejoice. We get to sing right in the face of our failures, in the face of our forsakenness, in the face of our fear, we get to sing joy to the world. The King has come. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of scripture and theology.